Amen. Take your Bibles and let's go to Revelation chapter 2 is where we are today. Thank you, my son. Grateful to be together in the house of the Lord today as you're opening your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. A couple things just to make you aware of. First of all, we have a host of people that are new to our church in the last 6 to 12 months. We have a process to help you understand a little bit more about our church. It's called Discover, Connect, Join. And that's an event that happens sometimes on three Sundays over the course of a few months, but there's actually an intense way to do it on one Saturday. And that's coming up on Saturday, September the 24th. You learn a little bit about our church history, what membership is like, and you know, being a part of a church is really important. It's the place you grow your roots. I'm not only the pastor, one of the pastors here, lead pastor, but also a church member, and this body has greatly affected my own spiritual life and the life of my family. My children have really benefited from this community. And so if you'd like to know more about that, um, please uh, consider being a part of Discover, Connect, Join. Secondly, tonight at five o'clock, we are gonna meet as we always do once a month for our uh, evening prayer time. We call it worship-based prayer night. This evening, what we're gonna do is spend some time reflecting on what it means that God is the one who was, is, and who is to come. We're going to recommission one of our uh, missionaries who's being deployed to a different field. We're gonna be praying for one another with particular uh, burdens. So if you have some urgent requests in your life, we'd love to have you come tonight so we can pray over you. We'll also have a congregational meeting to consider the proposal regarding the portico. And uh, tonight is just an important moment for us to come together and pray. This week I was with a group of pastors, a small group of uh, brothers committed to the word of God and prayer. So a lot of churches are either word or prayer, conferences, word or prayer. This is a group of guys trying to do it together. And uh, we were at the Brooklyn Tabernacle this week, got to experience their Tuesday evening prayer meeting. And I was reminded that um, 10% of a congregation coming to a prayer meeting is the definition of success in America when it comes to prayer. 10%. So just so you know, we're at that 10% level, but just so you know, I don't think that's a great stat. I think the lack of engagement in dependent prayer and especially corporate prayer is evidence of our lack of um, urgency and dependency. When urgency and need swell in the church, people pray. When they don't, they kind of float off and no longer seek the face of God. So let me encourage you to cultivate dependency in your life and because God is worthy to be sought and because you need the body of believers and because you need to pray. I want to encourage you to come tonight at uh, five o'clock. I'm not trying to guilt you into coming. I am, though, trying to exhort you. Prayer is important, and our dependency leaks fast. So battle against that by coming tonight and praying with some brothers and sisters. Revelation 2 is our text today, and I'm curious as to how many of you remember this bracelet thing that kind of swept the world in the 90s, WWJD. How many remember that? What would Jesus do bracelets? Remember that? These bracelets that you could wear, that communicate, what would Jesus do? The idea was to try and think through what would Jesus want us to do in terms of our obedience. Do you know where that started? The WWJD bracelets actually began with a youth group leader at Calvary Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan. It began as, and for those of you who aren't aware, that's where my previous church was, served there for 11 years. That movement, the WWJD bracelet movement, was an attempt on that youth leader's part to get Christian teens to think about how their Christian beliefs 
should translate into their daily lives. So the bracelets were trying to help teenagers, most of them, I presume, raised in Christian homes, think about how do we make this really work? Now, having pastored and lived in Holland, Michigan, that question is uniquely important, especially in that context, because if you ever visit Holland, Michigan, which you should during the months of May through August, stay away in January, February, and March, but those months are awesome, you'll be stunned with two things. One, the number of tulips, and two, the number of churches. Well, the population of that beautiful community is only 35,000 people. There are 170 churches in the surrounding Holland area. In fact, the, the community was founded by Reverend Albertus Christian Van Ralty in the 1800s, and he wanted to found the city as a training ground for Christ. But Holland was also known as the location for the great schism between the Reformed Church of America and what would eventually be known as the Christian Reformed Church. They divided over, get this, whether to sing those new hymns or to stick with singing the Psalter. They divided over whether services should be in English or whether they should be in Dutch. They divided over how Calvinist one should be and the use of the Heidelberg Catechism. When I served in that city, it was known among the pastors as the pastor's graveyard because so many pastors were run out of their churches. I'm not throwing Holland under the bus, it was a great community, but the dynamics of 170 churches for 35,000 people, it does something. That's the point. And what it did, amidst a bunch of wonderful things, what it did dangerously is it created a cultural form of Christianity, even at times a dead orthodoxy. And that's why what would Jesus do starting in Holland just makes so much sense to me. I trust you know that every community, every church has a story. Dig into Holland, Michigan, you'll find some things. Dig into College Park Church, dig into Indianapolis, you'll find some things. And in every generation, we need to not only ask the question, what would Jesus do? Here's another question from Revelation chapter two. The question is, what would Jesus say about our church, about our community, about our culture? You know, Jesus knows our story better than we do. He knows right now what's spiritually helpful. He knows who's listening to this sermon, who's in the room, in this moment, who's real. He knows who's faking it. So the question is, what would Jesus say about our church? What would he commend? What would he critique? So I think in order to know what Jesus would do, we need to know what Jesus would say. So that question, what would Jesus say, is front and center for the seven letters to the churches that we find in Revelation chapter two. And today my plan was to look at two churches, Ephesus and Smyrna, but I only got through the first one. So today we're gonna to look at two phrases. I intended to look at three. The first phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear, is gonna serve as an introduction to all of the seven letters. Do the works you did at first, 
That will be the singular point for the letter to the church at Ephesus, and then next week we'll look at the church at Smyrna and the call to be faithful. So our goal today is to consider what would Jesus say to us today? What did he say to them? And what would he say to us? Or for that matter, what would he say to you? What would he say to me? So first, we find this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. Before we get into specifics on Ephesus, I want to give a little overview to all of the letters of the churches. We're gonna dig deep into all of them over the next number of weeks, but it's important to remember a few things about all of these churches and consider how do we think about this particular section in Revelation and this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear, what the Spirit says to the churches is really, really important. A couple things to remind you of as it relates to these letters. Maybe you're joining us for the first time. The first is that all of these letters are written to real churches, but they're representative of all churches. In fact, that may be why there's seven letters. These were literal churches in modern day Turkey, but there were more than seven churches in that area. We're not exactly sure why John chose to write to these particular churches. He may have had some sort of prior relationship with them. Maybe he was familiar with them enough so he could write with some degree of accuracy. But the fact that he chooses seven is probably because John intends for these churches to be seen as representative of all churches. Each city probably had multiple house churches, so there wasn't just one church, so John has more than one church in mind. And what that means is that with every letter, there's something for every church to learn from every church. That's why he says, let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you have an ear, I got an ear, great. You, ought to, you should listen. So what John is trying to help us see here through the recording of Jesus' words is that there is no perfect church. And all God's people said? Amen. You're here. <laughs> you messed it up the minute you walked in the door. In fact, when someone new joins our church or they meet me out now in the front and they're like, this is the best church I've ever been in. This is the best sermon I've ever heard. It's so much better than that church. I'm like, yo, like, I don't usually say yo, but what I mean, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like hey, you know, I, in my mind, it's like the stopwatch starts. They'll be here a year, 18 months, and they're gonna go to the next church and they're gonna say, this is the best church I've ever been in. This is so much better than that church. The fact of the matter is, is the church is always in process. So when you join this church, you just need to know you're, you're joining an imperfect body. We got some things we need to work on, some stuff we gotta grow in, some things that we need to think about. So the second thing you need to know is that these letters are organized, it would seem, in what's called a chiastic form. Think of it like a mountain or sideways like an X, but, or like the book of Lamentations, chapter one builds to chapter two, it pinnacles at chapter three, down to four, down to five. And this is what happens with the book of, um, or these letters rather, to these seven churches. And letter one parallels letter seven. So the church at Ephesus is rebuked for leaving its first love. The church at Laodicea, letter seven, is rebuked for its lukewarmness. And so each church, where it falls in the structure, there's a parallel theme running between them. 
Third, each letter is connected to some characteristic of Jesus. Look at chapter two and verse one. Notice the description of Jesus. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So that's what John saw. So the vision that John saw in chapter one now is gonna be applied to these churches. In light of who Jesus is, he's gonna ask them, who are they? So Jesus and his essence becomes the plumb line of how the churches are to think about themselves. That's really important. The plumb line is not other churches. The plumb line isn't another date in history. The plumb line is Jesus. And with each of these churches, they're gonna have to wrestle with who are we and not who are the other churches. They're gonna have to wrestle with who are we and who is Jesus. That's why you have to pay attention to the man behind the curtain. If you get Jesus wrong, you get church wrong. It's easy to compare ourselves to other churches, other people, other Christians. You can always find another Christian who's more ungodly than you. (laughs) What you need is you need to think about Jesus. Look at chapter two, verse eight, to Smyrna. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. There's another characteristic of Jesus. Look at chapter two and verse 12 to the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You see this? Each of those characteristics of Jesus that John saw now emerge in these letters. It's really amazing. So, who is Jesus? That's the question. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now there are two phrases that emerge that we need to think about that are consistent in all the letters. The first phrase is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the first one. The second consistent phrase of all the letters is, to the one who conquers. So there's two questions that we must wrestle with when we read these letters. Number one, are we listening? And the second question is, are we ready to persevere? So listening, Mark this down, this is really important. Listening and perseverance are linked. People who don't listen don't persevere. So perseverance and listening are absolutely linked. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This might sound a little familiar if you were with us during our study of the book of Isaiah because one of the major warnings to the people of God that we saw in Isaiah chapter six, it was the commission of Isaiah was to keep on hearing, but do not understand. So one of the signs that God's people were on the right path is when they were hearing and understanding. Jesus, in the New Testament, uses the same kind of language, let he who has an ear, let him hear, as it relates to the parables. And the parables were intended to open the minds of those who had soft, receptive hearts, and parables were also designed to harden those who didn't want to hear and listen. So at the end of the parable of the soils, for instance, different kinds of soils, those who receive the word and those who don't, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. So this is warning language, church. This isn't just flippant language. This this is like when your mom used to say to you, are you listening? I mean, really, are you listening? That's what's going on here. If you don't hear, it's problematic. Because not listening is not only a sign of spiritual immaturity, 
It's a sign of God's judgment. Eventually, you get so used to hearing and not listening that you don't even hear anymore. You can sit in a service, hear a sermon, and what used to convict you, you've become good at not being convicted. Jesus uses prophetic and parabolic language in Revelation 2 on purpose. George Beale says this, the church has become compromising and spiritually lethargic and has entertained idolatrous allegiances and so the parabolic method of revelation is instituted. The parables throughout the book not only have a judicial effect on the unbelieving but are meant to shock believers caught up in the church's compromising complacency by revealing to them the horrific, beastly nature of the idolatrous institutions with which they are beginning to associate. So he's calling them out of the system of the world and to remind them who they are. He who has an ear, let him hear. The second phrase of all the letters that's important is to the one who conquers. And this relates to faithful endurance. Look at chapter two and verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Look at Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Look at chapter two, verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So remember that the purpose of this book is to inspire and encourage perseverance. That's why the concept of being a conqueror is linked to these promises. These promises are not meant to be viewed merely as a reward or as though it's transactional obedience. You do this, you get that. You do this, you do that. No, John is linking all of this together in one big package. When you listen, you're victorious and God blesses you. The one who listens, those are the ones who are victorious The victorious are blessed. So here's what I want you to do as we walk through these letters. Keep listening, lean in. Don't listen for somebody else, turn that thing off. Keep obeying, keep enduring, because we endure by listening. It's as, how are you gonna make it to the end as a Christian? It's as simple as this. You come on the Lord's day and you come with an open heart to say, God, I'm here to listen. You open your Bible tomorrow morning, and the way that you endure is, God, I'm here to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, regarding Ephesus, this phrase, do the works you did at first, is the signature phrase as it relates to the church at Ephesus. Text begins, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Ephesus is a solid church, church. It's in an important city, but they are showing signs of spiritual complacency. Their orthodoxy has outpaced their passion and heart. Again, their orthodoxy got ahead of their heart and their passion. 
Paul had served as the pastor of this church at Ephesus. According to Acts 19, it's a fascinating story. Paul serves there for two years and a mighty movement of God sweeps the region. There was like temples all over Ephesus and it was known as a commercial area for religious artifacts and little idols. And when the spirit of God begins to move and people are gloriously converted, they turn away from their idols and it affected the economy. And nothing ticks people off more than when it affects the economy. Can you imagine? (laughs) And so a riot ensues. They got together and said, hey, this guy Paul's gotta be stopped because he's preaching this gospel thing and this gospel thing is killing my bottom line. I can't sell idols if people don't believe in them. And so a riot ensued. Like people went crazy in their chanting, great is the God of Ephesus, Artemis. And they took two of Paul's companions and they were ready to kill him. Paul, you read the text in in Acts 19, Paul wants to rush in, his disciples hold him back. You can't go in there, they're gonna kill you. This whole thing, this, this city was lit up with controversy. It's from Ephesus that Paul writes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Corinthians. It's an important place. What's more, church tradition suggests that the apostle John may have even served in the city as well. So Paul leads with this church, or, or sorry, John leads with this church. Describes Jesus as the one who has seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Notice, Jesus is walking among the golden lampstands. What we're gonna see is that Jesus knows all about these churches. He knows what's commendable and he knows what should be critiqued. So the church at Ephesus was solid. It was a really good church, but it wasn't perfect. And listen to me, this is in the first century. So we got a church, like a hundred, not even a hundred years after Jesus walked the earth, pastored by the apostle Paul, probably also by John. Like they had luminaries in the apostolic tradition and yet they got problems. Can I just remind you that there's never been a golden era of the church. Some people say, we gotta get back to the early church. I'm like, okay, yeah, but like read Acts. Like there's problems and controversies and people lie and they die. You want that? Okay. (laughs) Woo. People are like, we gotta get back to the Puritans. Like, okay, great. They banned Christmas. And you couldn't wear wedding rings. A little more serious. My circles, like the fundamentalists nailed it. Well, yeah, but they were also promoting segregation. Some of you strike the line in 1950s, man, that was Mayberry Christianity. Yeah, and at the same time, most churches had no concern for the black experience in America. So you just dig into history and you gotta realize like it's all in process, even in our own modern day context. Some of us have an emotional connection to a particular era of our own experience, and we have to be careful that we not overly dramatize that. You may have gotten saved in a college group and you think like discipleship is like what your buddies were in college and it's just not the same and that's good, but you can't import that every place in every way. We have to realize that the church in every era, even in our own, yes, even in our own, needs to constantly be asking ourselves, what would Jesus say? Like right now, what would he say? Dig deep enough and you'll find some really big areas in need of renewal. 
So Jesus commends this church. There's, there's a lot of really good things going on. Look at verses two through three. He lists nine affirmations. Let me just cover these quickly. He says, I know your works. This church was marked by obedience. Like they were a good church. He says, I know your toil. In hardship, they were pressing forward even when it was hard. He says, your patient endurance. Remember, this is the goal of the book. So Ephesus is apparently modeling the very thing that John is concerned about. They were to be commended. They were discerning. Look at, you have tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So they were careful in considering those who seemed to have authority, those who could create content, those who could teach, those who could preach, and they were coming to the conclusion that not everybody who creates content should be listened to. Listen, not everybody that has a YouTube channel should you be watching. Not everybody who has the gift of teaching should be considered authoritative. And that isn't just a, a, a present-day issue. That's always been an issue. They're called to endure patiently. This probably means that they were experiencing some kind of persecution. They're bearing up for my name. They were taking a bold stand for the name of Jesus. And notice this, they've not grown weary. I mean, this is amazing. Despite the pressure, they weren't backing down. They were solid. They had spines. What's more, if you skip ahead to verse six, you'll see they're commended for hating the work of the Nicolaitans. This probably was some group, maybe even within the church, who were encouraging the mixture of Christianity and emperor worship. Maybe they created a, a third rail, so to speak. Hey, the way that we can get along is, let's just say that the emperor is the Lord. God knows we don't mean it. Let's stay in our little trade guilds. Let's not get kicked out. We'll just mix all of this together. And throughout the course of Christian history, the church has always had to figure out where and when do we draw the line? And this church was not growing weary. It's quite a list. And we just need to savor the fact that this is a really amazing picture, a solid church whose doctrine and discernment are faithful and biblical. They've, they've weathered storms. They've experienced opposition. They were tested and they were still in the fight. There's so much to be thankful here, thankful for here, but they're not perfect. And there's something missing and it's serious. Jesus says in verse four, but I have this against you. This is a warning. Verse five says, remember from where you have fallen and repent or I will remove your lampstand from its place. This isn't a minor critique. Let he who has ears, let him hear what the spirit is about to say to the churches. The critique is that this faithful, orthodox, resilient church had abandoned the love they had at the first. What does that mean? It means, most commentators agree, that Jesus has in mind the kind of passionate affection for God and one another that characterized the church in their early days or just after their conversion. They came to Jesus, 
Their sins are forgiven, and all they know is, man, I love Jesus, and I love you, because you love Jesus. And that's gone. What's more, it's not just about their feelings. It's not just a feely thing. The church is rebuked for not doing the works that they did at first. So it's not just the feelings, but it was the things that they did in light of what they felt. So the problem is that the church was not doing the kind of things that were motivated by and expressed love to God and to one another. One commentator puts it this way, the Ephesian converts had known such a love in their early years, but their struggle with false teachers and their hatred of heretical teaching had apparently engendered hard feelings and harsh attitudes toward one another to such an extent that it amounted to a forsaking of the supreme Christian virtue of love. Their faithfulness had created a level of callousness. Their zeal for orthodoxy led them to be unloving toward God and toward others. The early days where they were excited about spiritual things and their care for one another began to diminish. And the stress of hardship and opposition caused them in their affections to diminish in their activity in terms of their love for God and one another. This is serious and I think that most of us can relate, especially if you're a little older. When I was a kid growing up, we used to watch The Muppet Show, remember that? Kermit and Piggy and the guy on the drums, remember, you know? And there were, there were two old guys in the balcony, remember those guys? <laughs> I don't know what their names were, but they were always like, ah, that's so stupid. There's a reason why we don't say grumpy young men. There's a reason why we say grumpy old man. Here's, here's why, seriously. Because after you've taken so many hits in life, you've seen so many things come and go, at one level you have wisdom. But if you're not careful, you can also begin to become cynical. You can become calloused. Your disappointment in people and in the church can actually create a diminishing of love, not just for people, it can actually create a diminishing of your love for God. Jesus warns them if they don't listen, he's gonna come, listen to this, he's gonna remove their lampstand. What that means is He's gonna remove the spiritual power of their church. They could very well exist. They're still meeting on the Lord's day, but the sense of the presence of the Spirit of God is gone. Hear me, this is a solid church. Like, you'd want to be a member of the church at Ephesus, but she's not perfect. The, the promise here is to eat from the tree of life, which is in, in the garden, in the paradise of God. The idea is this. God and you are gonna be back together again, closeness, intimacy. This is the promise of sort of an Eden-like experience. So this first letter is really important. You can tell now why I stopped, I didn't go any further. Because I felt that this letter speaks to me. 
So the question we gotta ask ourselves, church, is what would Jesus say? I think this letter is uniquely applicable because of the conversations that I'm having with pastors all over the country and conversations I've had with many of you. The last few years have been incredibly challenging, have they not? For every church, for our church. And to be honest with you, given what I see in the world and around us, I I don't think things are gonna get easier. I think they're gonna get more complicated, not less. So we gotta figure out how to be faithful in our generation and not have our love for God and one another tank. And while we should embrace the wisdom that comes with time-tested faithfulness, I think we might need to take a moment and think about what the love you had at first looked like. Can you think about that with me for a moment? Think back on the moment when Jesus captured your heart when you realized that all of your sins had been forgiven, you brought nothing to the table. Remember what it was like when you just were overwhelmed with God's grace? I I know, I know, I know you were a bit naive. I know. But maybe, maybe, maybe we just need a little bit more of that naivete back into the equation. Is it not meaningful to those of you who've been married 30 years that you go on a date? And you're giggling like you were when you first met? Nothing wrong with that. That's amazing. Some of you haven't had that kind of feeling for Jesus in years. Let me give you a few examples. When you came to Jesus, do you remember that you couldn't believe how wonderful the Bible was? Like you're reading it, just popping off the page. You couldn't wait to dig into this book. Now you study it, you analyze it, you outline it. You got study Bibles and commentaries and software and all of it's amazing. But Jesus needs to be loved, not just studied. You were so passionate about receiving Jesus that you you would tell anything that moved the gospel. You were bold, because your life changed. You come to worship, you didn't care what songs were sung. All you knew, I'm with other people that love Jesus. This is awesome. You loved meeting people who love Jesus. You had no idea about denominations. You're like, Denama what? You love Jesus, I love Jesus. Come here, man, give me a hug. Didn't care if he was Calvinist, Arminian, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Baptist. Didn't care whose team he was on. You loved talking to God in prayer because you just couldn't believe the opportunity to talk to your Savior. You looked to the future with such optimism because you thought this, crazy thought, my sins are forgiven. What else could happen to me to make my life awesome? This is all I need. And you lived in that. You looked at people and you believed that they actually could change. You knew if Jesus comes and gets in, this whole thing could radically make a turn. 
Your heart was so filled with gratitude and thankfulness because of all that God had done for you. Yeah, life was hard, but the overwhelming sense within your soul is my sins have been forgiven. My Savior has rescued me. I am so incredibly grateful. Receiving God's grace meant that you were generous with your time and your money because you knew, man, God's been so generous with me. I gotta be generous with others. And you came on Sunday and you used to think, this is a little slice of heaven. Look at all these people who love the same king. This is amazing. Some of you woke up to church today and came to church today and this thought crossed your mind. Not a little slice of heaven. Your thought is, I hope I don't run into so-and-so. Now, I could go on, but I trust that you get my point. And my hope is for some believers today who feel homesick for that kind of heart. Because if we're honest, and if I'm honest, the hardship and the opposition and even our own shortcomings over the last number of years can create a cold-hearted cynicism. And it's not hard when you've been hardened to become harsh. It's possible to become a grumpy Christian with no joy and no faith and no love. So this letter to this church is one that I need. It's one that you need. It's one that we need. And I'd like to ask you, seriously, what is the Spirit saying to you, to us, right now? Where is your heart today? The last number of years just put you up in the balcony in the Muppet Show? Have the trials of your life and the disappointments that you faced in the church created a bit of a callousness? Think back of when you came to faith in Christ. Here's my challenge to you. What is one thing that you could do in the next week, just one thing, something you did previously, something that was representative of your naive passion for Jesus and love for other people, what's one thing you could do in this next week that would be similar to what you did when you were in that zone of your first love for Jesus? The question, beloved church, that I want us to ask is this. When Jesus looks down at us, as he walks among this lampstand, what does he see? Have you, have we left our first love? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord Jesus, would you help us? 
Would you help us to return to the kind of love for you and for one another that marked us when our relationship with you was simple, when we knew that our sins were forgiven and that Jesus was king. So help my brothers and sisters today whose hearts right now are resonating, beating within their chest that, oh, I need this, who are right now hearing from you because the Spirit of God is on the move saying, the fact that you hear is a really good sign. So come now, Lord Jesus, we pray. And help us to hear. In your name, amen.